you have a Bible with you this morning, how about if you turn to uh, Luke chapter 19. Some of you thought I was going to say Hebrews, didn't you? We've been in Hebrews for uh, 11 weeks and walking into Easter celebration, just couldn't help myself. I have to do this uh, Palm Sunday story because of the way it greatly affects Easter and what happened at Easter. And so I really want you to get the background on what's going on in Jesus' life and the life of the disciples as we enter into this Easter story. And so much looking forward to celebrating with you this week um, what we know to be true. And part of understanding that is going to Luke 19 and this narrative that unfolds. Before we do that, I'm going to pray with you. Um, But before we do that, I'm just going to ask you, if you have opportunity next week um, to help serve at the Easter services, we could use a few people to help um, serve as ushers in the auditorium or to help in the parking lot with parking cars. And if it's possible for you to park your cars out on the street when you come in to make enough room, like last year at Easter, there was like 800 people in our parking lot, parts like 85 cars, okay? So you can imagine what that's like. So if you, if you don't mind, park out on the side of the street or the curbs before you come into the, into the building. Let's pray, and then we'll step into the, the narrative. Father, we come before you asking for a fresh set of eyes. I'm aware that there's many in the auditorium throughout the course of the weekend for whom this story is extremely familiar. And yet, God, I would ask that you give us a fresh heart because you said that your word is alive and that it's active regardless of how many times we've heard it. We know that you can speak to us. So, God, I ask that you would speak to us in a fresh new way. We've come before you with song and we come before you now with your word open, but we are totally dependent upon your Holy Spirit to bring life to your word. It's your Holy Spirit active within us that causes us to understand. So, God, we would ask not only that your Holy Spirit brood over this auditorium, but that you would speak to each of us individually and directly. Show us now, Father, what you have to say. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have this amazing narrative of what's going on in Jesus' life as we come into what we call today Palm Sunday. That's not what they called it at that period of time. But it starts out with a dinner party. Jesus is at a dinner party that's being given in his honor. There's a big celebration in a wealthy man's house, and he's trying to honor Jesus. And it's the night before Palm Sunday. People are gathered inside the house for this festival because just a few days earlier, Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead. If you're not familiar with the story, Lazarus is a good friend of Jesus. People told him that Lazarus, his best friend, had died, and so Jesus comes to the cemetery. People are gathered there. They're mourning, and Jesus speaks literally the man out of the grave, and Lazarus comes walking out in his tomb clothes. Looks like a mummy. He's all wrapped up. Well, as a result of this, many people want to see what's going on. They've heard rumors about Jesus, but they want to know more. And so we find in John chapter 12, and matter of fact, while you're in Luke 19, you might want to stick your finger in John chapter 12 this morning, if that's easy for you, but you'll see all this on the screen as well. You'll find that people quickly began coming towards Jesus because of this story. So here's what we see in John 12 verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not only for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. Now, many people come to Jesus as a result of the resurrection of Lazarus. 
But here's some of the background going on. When it says the large crowd, it's not talking about the people from the city of Jerusalem necessarily. Jesus is in a a bedroom community called Bethany, which is about eight miles outside of Jerusalem. And in this bedroom community, it's a little township area. Jesus is at this dinner party, and people who are in Jerusalem on vacation happen to hear that Jesus is just over the hill, over in Bethany. So they decide, we're going to make our way there. Here's the background. It's Passover. It's the week leading up to one of the three biggest festivals in the year. We think it's a big deal here in the United States when we celebrate Super Bowl week. Well, Passover week was way beyond anything that we know. As a matter of fact, everybody canceled their plans around the Mediterranean if you had Jewish descent to make your way to Jerusalem, the capital city, to be in town for Passover. It was kind of a big deal. And so people would swarm that direction. Well, we know for sure that the population of Jerusalem at this period of time was about 160,000 people. However, during Passover week, it appears that it swelled to about 2 million people. How do we know that? Well, in AD 40, there's a record by a historian by the name of Josephus who said in AD 40 that there were 240,000 Passover lambs killed in that Passover alone. Now, it was common for a Passover lamb to be killed one for every 10 people. So 240,000 lambs that are slain, do the math, it comes to about 2.4 million people. There's no place to sleep. Everybody's looking for hotels. They're camping out in Jerusalem State Park. They don't have an option. It's just crowded. So people are spilling out into the bedroom communities. Well, they're on vacation. It's like spring break, and they hear... Jesus is in town, and he healed a guy. He raised him from the dead. We got to see this. They got lots of time on their hands, so they show up. They're looking in the windows. They're seeing this dinner party taking place, and Jesus finds this huge crowd. You can imagine the excitement. Now, messianic hopes are running really, really high at this period of time because life under Rome is tough. It is so hard, and they want to be delivered from Rome's rule. Now, this freaks out Jesus' enemies because this large crowd gathering around Jesus brings like crisis to them. Their worst fears are being realized. They didn't want Jesus to be known. They didn't want him to be popular. They wanted him to be obscure. And now they've got this large crowd on their hands. What's the solution? Well, they come up with a brainstorm. They're going to kill the dead guy. Really, their thought is they're going to kill Lazarus and they're going to kill Jesus and take both of them out of the picture because they think if they eliminate them, then maybe the crowd will not be quite so sold out. So we see in John 11 this reasoning that takes place in the minds of the leaders of Israel. It says this, John eleven forty seven. Therefore, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council. Now, that should be a warning flag for you right away because the chief priests are made up of the Sadducees. The Pharisees are, are like another group, another sect, and they didn't get along. It, it's like the Democrats and the Republicans coming together and agreeing on something. Okay, This group are two different political parties, and they've come together and they convened a council. Look what they said. And we're saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And we can't have that. So they say, Rome's going to come and take away both our place and our nation. See, it's about preserving their power. They're true politicians. They want to protect what they have a hold of. They're trying to keep a grasp on their power base. So they put out the wanted posters. 
Jesus is known to be wanted. The supreme court of the land, the highest leaders are saying, if you see this guy, turn him into us. He's a wanted criminal. So everybody's watching. It's Passover. Is he going to show up? Is he actually going to come into the capital city during this period of time? Well, that's where Luke 19 picks up. So if you've been holding your finger there, go with me to verse 29. It begins telling the story. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. Verse 32, taking this in a big chunk. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. Very familiar story if you grew up in church. John gives us an insight John tells us there's an undercurrent going on. John 12 says this. You'll see this on the screen. The next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Large crowd, that's the Passover crowd. They've come to the feast. They've heard that Jesus is in Jerusalem. Next day, that's a very important phrase. It means the morning after the dinner party. Dinner party's already taken place. The next day. So during the night is when Judas snuck out. It's when Judas sold Jesus the night before Palm Sunday. Judas goes and makes the slave price purchase of Jesus available to the leaders of Israel. He says, how much do you want for him? And he trades Jesus off for 30 pieces of silver. That that takes place at the beginning of the week. Now we've got this crowd gathering. Well, who's there? Well, I'm thinking for sure, just kind of guessing, but I'm thinking Lazarus is there. Would you not be stuck to Jesus like glue if he called you back from the grave? I would be. And so that'd be very obvious. Lazarus is there. I'm thinking all the Marys are there too. Have you ever counted the number of Marys in Scripture? I mean, there's a lot of them. Mary and Mary and Mary and Mary and Mary and Mary. And so I'm thinking all the Marys are there. And I'm pretty sure Lazarus is there. And I'm guessing the disciples based on the story. Because it says the disciples are part of the rejoicing that takes place. But then there's three distinct groups. There's the great crowd, Scripture says. That's the Passover crowd huge throng of people. And then we're told that those people who were going to the funeral with Jesus are there. The ones who had showed up because they thought they were going to a funeral, which really turned into a resurrection. So those people are stuck like glue to Jesus. And then the story tells us also that the residents of Jerusalem, the 160,000 who made Jerusalem their hometown, they begin showing up. So this is like the parade of nations at the Olympics. Everybody's gathering to come around Jesus. Uh, here's the current that's going on underneath. There's this plan in place to kill Jesus, but not during the Passover because they know there's going to be a riot. Matter of fact, Matthew gives us this insight in chapter 26. It says, they plotted together, meaning the leaders, to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him, but they were saying not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. That passage right there tells me that regardless of Satan's plans, And you know Satan was behind that. Regardless of Satan's plans, God's plans always rule. Because God was orchestrating the events and God knew what needed to happen, that it had to happen during the week of Passover. So Jesus knew the applause and the cheering of the crowd was going to infuriate the leaders of Israel to the degree that they would want to kill him 
because they're desperate to eliminate him. And knowing that, your Jesus willingly enters that environment. He willingly went forward. John 12, we just saw, tells us that the people heard, they heard that Jesus was coming in. How did they hear? Well, words on the street. People are pouring out of the city to meet him. Starbucks is empty. There's nobody shopping in the mall. Everybody wants to be where Jesus is at. And Mark gives us this little insight. The reason we call it Palm Sunday is Mark says that people ran out into the fields and began cutting palm branches, running back to the highway where Jesus is at and laying them out on the road. But we're also told they did something else. Look with me up on the screen at Luke 18. It says in verse 36, or Luke 19, verse 36, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. Now, putting your coat down on the floor was something that was done for royalty. Only for royalty. Because it was this. It was saying, we are under you. I won't step on my white coat. (laughs) We're saying, literally, when we put our coat down, I'm putting myself under you. You're my king. You're my sovereign. You're above me. So that's the imagery. We would say it's like rolling out the red carpet. It comes from the Old Testament. Second Kings chapter 9 says this. They made Jehu king this particular year. In verse uh, 12 it says, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then they hurried and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps. People took off their coats. Jehu walked on their coats. They're announcing, you're the king. So people are beginning to roll out the red carpet for Jesus. Let's go to verse 37 now of Luke 19. It says, As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Verse 38, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, John tells us they used a phrase that might be familiar to you if you grew up in church. Maybe you know this phrase from Christmas time because they use it in songs, the word Hosanna. They begin saying Hosanna, except in the Hebrew tongue, it's Hoshana. Hoshana. Three different words. Hoshana. Save us now. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is an acclamation. Literally, they're saying, save us. This is a plea for action. Save them from what? From Rome. They're looking for a military leader, a political leader, who will free them from the tyranny of Rome. How do they know this phrase? Well, during Passover, every morning of Passover week, on the steps of the temple, and this is a massive facility, a choir of several hundred people gather, professional singers, and they sing what's known as the Hallel, Psalm 118. Let me give you just a couple excerpts from this and see if you can see the link. Psalm 118, verse 5. Remember, it's set to music. It says, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The choir is singing this every morning at Passover. Next verse, 25, save now. That's where Hoshana comes from. 
Save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, the crowd is swept up, and they begin chanting and repeating back what they just heard on the steps of the temple that morning. The vacation crowd is gathered. They heard the great Hallel saying, and now they're repeating it back. Oh, Shana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Would not watching and hearing about the resurrection of a dead guy give you reason to begin to praise? I'm thinking, yeah. I'm thinking if you and I were part of that crowd, we'd be doing the exact same thing. We'd be caught up in the same thought because they just heard this phrase on the steps of the temple. What do I have to fear? What can man do to me? Hoshana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, he raised Lazarus. Uh, We get this insight from John. John tells us they went one step further. Luke left off with just blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but look what John included that they also said. They began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Simon says, take one giant step forward. That is a huge acclamation. They've not just said, save us now, or that he's blessed They're pronouncing him their king. Remember, Roman soldiers are all over the place. And they're saying, we have a king. And his name is Jesus, and he's in our midst. The king of Israel. This crowd is in a frenzy. And this whole massive crowd begins to shout with loud voices. Remember what they've heard and seen, church. They've seen blind people now who can watch children running in the streets because the blindness was taken away. They've heard about and seen people who were deaf who can now hear the birds singing. They've watched paralyzed people get up and go to Zumba class. Can you imagine? People who were hungry. Jesus made them bread. Jesus walked on water. He calmed the seas, and now he's raised a dead guy? Would you not be part of that crowd? So as he heads to Jerusalem, they know nothing can stop him. He can speak, and in a moment, Pilate can be obliterated. Are they going to see the angels come down from heaven and fight on their behalf? Are they going to see fire come down from heaven and, and destroy Rome like it did the city of Sodom? That's what they're hoping for. They're hoping for a military encounter. So in the mind of the people, the arrival of Jesus means that he's ready for action. However, it's just not the kind of action they're thinking. God is ready for action, but it's not what they have in mind. Let me take you back to the text. I want to I go full circle back to this thought of Jesus getting on a donkey. John tells us in chapter 12 something very specific about what Jesus sat on. John 12, 14 says this, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, he's quoting the Old Testament now, verse 15, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. How do you think of God when you pray? I know it sounds like a hard shift from what we're talking about, but how do you picture God when you're in prayer time? 
I'll tell you how I think of them in just a minute, but let me hear from you. What, what do you picture when you think of the Father? On a throne, yeah. Just one person. Anybody else want to weigh in on it? Big, yeah. Biggest, bigger than the universe, yeah. Go ahead. Say that for him. Big and powerful. I'm right with you, brother. Do you ever think of him on a donkey? Maybe we should, based on what I'm going to show you here. Here's how I picture him. I always picture him on a white horse. Well, not always. Many times I picture him on a throne, but many times I picture him on a white horse. There's a reason for that imagery that's in my mind because we're told something about this arrival of Jesus. He's arriving into the capital city, and he's not coming as a conqueror this time. He's riding a donkey. As a matter of fact, it's a fulfillment of Scripture. But there's a time when Jesus is going to arrive in Jerusalem, we're told according to the Bible, and he's going to be on a white horse. Speaking of the future, he's going to be arriving at the second coming, Scripture says in Revelation 19, on a white horse. Look with me on the screen at this. Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Who's sitting on that white horse, church? Jesus. The same one who sat on the donkey will enter Jerusalem again on a white horse. Well, that's in the future. That's at the second coming. But now, the choice of his mount is a donkey. Why? 500 years earlier, it was prophesied that when the Messiah arrived... He's going to come on a donkey. As a matter of fact, if you reach all the way back into the book of Zechariah, Old Testament stuff, chapter 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph. That means the inhabitants of Jerusalem. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Just think this in terms this way. If you took 500 years from 2014 and went back to 1514, try and find somebody who could write an exact detail like that in 1514 about what's going to happen in 2014. You'd have to go back to the time of Leonardo da Vinci. 500 years before Jesus, Zechariah said, when the king comes, this is how he's going to come the first time into the city. Now, this is really confusing to the disciples what's going on here because Jesus has always walked with them. Every place he goes, he's walking. As a matter of fact, John tells us they were confused. John 12, verse 16, it says, these things his disciples did not understand. John even writes in his old age, we were ignorant. We couldn't put the pieces together. It didn't make sense to us. Why? Because they came into this setting with death on their minds. Their thinking is that they're going to be executed. They said, let's go die with him. So their thought is, this crowd is not going to receive us. And now they're confused because this crowd is welcoming Jesus. So let's let's go back to the narrative, Luke 19, coming down to the ending here. But it says in verse 39, there was a reaction on the part of the leaders. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, the officials have thrown down the penalty flag. 
The ball carrier has stepped out of bounds. This is unacceptable to them. They, they don't want this to be happening. And so the Pharisees are infuriated. Are, are they mad because the screaming's hurting their ears? It's too loud for them? No. There must be something else going on. Because Jesus says silence is not acceptable. Look at his response to them in verse 40, Luke 19. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Let a geologist get a hold of that verse. A geologist would try and figure out how. How could that possibly be? Jesus is saying the people are destined to give witness. If they withhold it, they'll be disloyal to who he is. I'm going to ask you this morning, church, are we not called to do the exact same thing? Are we not called to shout out who Jesus is? Because Jesus says, if you don't do it, the rocks are going to get the privilege. We are bound to confess Jesus and let it be known who we belong to. That's why I'm excited about baptism this morning. This is a group of people who are among eight or nine individuals who have said, I belong to Jesus and I'm not afraid to tell people. See, it's stimulating. If you're among those who are getting baptized, or maybe some of them have already gone to the changing room, but I want you to know what you're doing is stimulating to other people to say, I can do that too. They can do that. I can do that. You're calling people to cheer, to celebrate who Jesus is. And frankly, our world needs more than ever now attention drawn to Jesus. And it's stimulating when you do things like this. So Jesus refuses. And he says, if they remain quiet, the stones are going to scream. Literally, the word is kradzo when he says, Stones are going to cry out. Cry out, kradzo, means the sound of an eagle when it's about to attack its prey. It's that kind of a scream. It's loud. Instead of how would rocks cry out, let's ask ourselves why. Why would the rocks cry out? Because according to God's word, everything in heaven and in earth was created for him and by him. And to him. I think I read that someplace, someplace somewhere. Colossians 1, maybe. Everything. You and I exist for the glory and the praise of Jesus. This building, maybe a future one someday, exists for the praise of Jesus Christ. And if, if we refuse, the rocks will get the joy. Because God's going to get his due, church. God always gets the glory. So these talking rocks are witnesses. And here's what they're a witness to this particular day. These rocks are a witness to the fact that your God can cause stones on the ground to praise him or stony hearts that are captivated inside the Pharisees. They can't even see they got God in their midst. God says, you aren't going to let them praise me? The rocks are going to scream out. It's fascinating to me, those same rocks are still there today, just waiting for the return of their king, the second coming of Jesus. Let's end this now, we'll land this plane. John 12, 19 says, so the Pharisees said to one another, the world has gone after him. True politicians, they really have their finger on the pulse of society. They know what's going on, they're watching the polls, they're measuring it out, they're saying, you're not doing any good. This thing is falling apart, it's ironic to me. Jesus is right there in plain sight. They are desperate to get their hands on him and they can't touch him. 
And so they feel like the world is spiraling out of control. Here's the real problem. They are so consumed, church, with their agenda, they can't even see that God's heart is breaking right in front of them. We come to this next verse, and we're told God's crying on the side of a mountain. Look with me at this. Luke 19, 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. How would you describe these tears this morning? Might be kind of an odd question. How would you describe those tears? See, a smile can hide a lot. Somebody smiles at you. You have no idea what they're thinking. But tears tell you a lot. But how would you describe these tears? See, Jesus' tears are an evaluation of the real situation, what's really going on. So how would you describe them? Are are these tears of joy? Is, Is this Jesus saying, they like me, they really like me? I don't think so. Based on what I hear in the story here, Are are these tears of fear? No, we're told that Jesus laid down his life willingly. No man can take his life from him. So these aren't tears of fear. See, his tears reveal much about who he is. And something you may not have thought of before. His tears reveal much about what he feels towards you this morning. How he sees you. And what he thinks of you. These tears are tears of grief. And he's grieving over the looming misery of Jerusalem. Because hell is approaching and they don't even know it. People are caught up in the celebration because they think they have a military leader, a political figure who's going to free them from Rome. And they're all about their agenda, thinking that what they want out of God, he's going to accomplish. And they totally miss what God's up to. And so his grief is about the people behind the walls, inside the city, the children running the streets. His grief is about the people who are working their own agenda, and they totally miss the fact that God is in the house. He's invited them to engage with him. So he's weeping over this multitude who have God in front of them, the opportunity to engage with God activity, and they totally miss it. That's why he's grieving. So far from being elated by the celebration, we have this contradiction. Everybody around him is laughing and screaming and celebrating, and God begins crying. By the end of the week, it's obvious that Jesus is not the military leader they want. He's not the political force, and the people turn vicious. Crucify him! People who just celebrated him are now yelling for his death. Here's how we know this. It goes to verse 42, and this is where it ends. Jesus is talking, and he tells us what's really going on in his heart. If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground. He's talking about A.D. 70, what we know to be true. Rome sieged Jerusalem and Israel and laid them to the ground. Why? Jesus tells us, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. God came to them. They rejected him. 
and they missed the fact that they could receive him and they chose to walk away. And Jesus literally said, within one generation, this city is going to cease. The temple will be destroyed and dismantled. 70 AD it happened. So what appears to be a reception is in reality a rejection. It's going to take a week to bear out. The the people understand who he is. They know his power. But Jesus doesn't fulfill their desires, their wants, their needs. And so they begin looking for a new Jesus. By the end of the week, they're going to say, we have no king but Caesar. Now think about the contrast, church, of what the human heart is capable of. Oh, shock. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Five days. That's all it took for their hearts to change. Coming out of this, the question I have is, how did he respond? How did God respond to them not responding to him? How does he look at this situation? See, the Bible says the things that are written, the things that you hold in your hand, were written for our instruction that we might learn from people who went before us. Here's what I know about us. We're just like the people in the first century. We have a day of grace presented to us. We hear the information of how God wants to engage with us. We have a choice in how we're going to respond. So suppose Jesus rode in here this morning and he looked over this auditorium and he looked upon the hearts that are here. What would be the feelings of his heart towards you? Are you living in a place where you're completely in surrender to God and obedient to what he's calling you to do? Are you living in a place of disobedience? Is there something that you're not surrendering The reality of God's word is in a moment like this when our hearts are tender, God's inspecting our hearts. And he's looking upon us to see how we're going to respond to what we know to be true about who he is. So some of you, and I don't know who, some of you might be feeling like I've been holding back. There's something that God's been asking me to surrender. There's something that I've been disobedient about, and I've I've got to deal with that this morning. I want to encourage you to remember this. According to what God says, if you consistently repel the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life, pushing him away, you don't only grieve the Holy Spirit, you can actually quench the Holy Spirit and shut him down. See, there's a day of grace that's been offered to us, just like the people in this first century. But I want to go back to my question. How does he respond to them not responding to him? This is the amazing contrast. God responds with compassion. He just does. He says in the Old Testament, I am compassionate and merciful and forgiving. In the New Testament, Jesus is crying on the side of a hill, even though people rejected him. He could have said, you idiots, you losers, you totally missed it. That's not what's going on. He's crying not over the collapse of the walls and the collapse of the temple, but because of the people who don't even know that hell is hovering over their head. And they totally miss that they've got this opportunity to engage with God. Now, you might be wondering right now, Mark, how does this point towards baptism? Because I know that's what's coming next. I want to take you there just briefly. If 
we know for sure that God grieves over the lost. I want you to know the opposite is true for those of you who walk in the way of righteousness. If God grieves over those who are disobedient to him, he rejoices over those who are obedient to him. Did you know that your God sings over you? Did you know that God sings? I mean, who created Pavarotti? All right? That, that's the best measure I have for an excellent voice. You may not like classical music, but you've got to admire the quality of the voice. God made that voice. The angels sing. Well, who taught them to do that? Scripture says that God sings for a specific reason. He rejoices over his people who rejoice in him. What you're about to see are people who are rejoicing in their God. Let me back that up for you just as I close with Scripture. Zephaniah 3.17, it says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with quiet singing. Right? Is that what it says? With loud singing. Very deliberate. God rejoices when his people rejoice. Well, if you've never been to baptism at New Hope before, this can be a fairly raucous place. So be prepared. People get kind of excited when we watch life transformation before our eyes. You're about to see people who have said life transformation has taken place. And know this, God is rejoicing, church. Let's remember that as we go into prayer, and then you're going to watch baptism. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take the reality of your word, the truth of what we've heard this morning, and drive it deep into our hearts. You are a God of compassion. You are a God who weeps over people who reject. And Father, you are merciful. Thank you for making your word come alive tonight and this morning. I ask right now, as, as we witness these baptisms, you will help us to celebrate as people who are redeemed of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.